I looked at real estate. Um, I, I talked to people. I looked at real estate. The whole thing made sense. Everything from OPM, other people's money, to leverage, to, you know, inefficiency of the market. The whole thing made sense. Um, and so I became a student of it. Welcome to Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon, the investing show with a buzz. Sit back, relax, let's take the edge off, grab a nice glass of bourbon, and enjoy. Cheers from your host, James Vermillion. But first, let me kindly remind you, the information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific, individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome back to Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon. I'm your host, James Vermillion, founder of Vermillion Private Wealth. This show is about life, investing, innovation, wealth building, and more, and this episode covers a lot of ground. I'm happy to share a conversation I recently had with Ben Labovich. Ben, along with Sam Groom, started Whitehaven Capital, a commercial real estate investment company in Phoenix, Arizona. But it's not just Ben's investing prowess that made me want to talk to him and share that conversation with you. It's the fact that he's a super intelligent and very interesting person. When a medical diagnosis impacted his life plans, he turned to real estate investing to generate income and provide for his family. Ben is never shy to share his opinion. He's a guy I have a ton of respect for, and his passion is infectious. I hope you'll find this conversation insightful as we discuss why Ben chose real estate, how personal evolution led to business growth, chasing a better version of yourself, and a whole lot more. Enjoy. Ben, thanks so much for coming on, man. It's such a pleasure to have you and to talk to you. It's a pleasure to be with you, James. So I'll be honest, when I started thinking about uh, doing this podcast and I was brainstorming and trying to come up with a list of people who I thought would be really interesting, people to come on the show, people who had something to offer, you were you were towards the top of the list. And I'm, I'm really glad that you agreed to come on because I, I know this is going to be a good conversation. It's It's got to be my good looks, right? It, that's what it is. That's what it yeah, is. That's, that's what it's got to be. Don't, I can't imagine what else it could be, James. Don't worry. I'm not going to release the video. So this will be audio only. But uh, I first heard of you on biggerpockets.com, which of course is the, the real estate investing community. And I was scared shitless of you <laughs> because <laughs> here, here I was. This was this was back in the early days of, of Bigger Pockets, And I yeah. was... Um, in my early 20s, I was just trying to learn things and trying to figure yeah. things out. And people, you know, would sometimes say silly things on there as they do on any online community. And you would absolutely destroy every fiber of their being with numbers and math, math, Ben. And I was like, holy shit, I'm not messing with this guy. I'm steering clear <laughs> of this guy. But uh, I'm less scared of you now. But um, I, I respect you. Um, in your opinion, uh, just as much. So I appreciate it very much. Um, Bigger Pockets was a place that afforded me an opportunity f- for Ben to be a little bit of Ben. Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, I cherish that because I I do much less of that now. Right. Um, but just today, I was talking at <laughs> Josh Dorkin. We were texting back and forth, 
the the founder of uh, yeah. uh, Bigger Pockets. And last week I was talking to Scott Trench. I'm still really good friends with all of those guys. Yeah, clearly Brandon. You know, yeah, yeah. that's a whole another kind of story. Yeah, I need uh, to get Brandon on here. <laughs> you do, you do. Um, but um, they they allowed me the the latitude. Mm-hmm. probably because they knew why, you know, it's back. It's the math. It's the math. It's not Ben's opinion. He's, he's the math, you know, he's providing the math. Yeah. So, so they allowed me to, to contribute in a way that I felt was honest uh, and to the point. And if anybody truly wants to learn, here it is. Yeah. I'm not here to make it pretty. I'm not here to, Here's the information. If you truly want to learn, here it is. Um, and they were okay with that. They were okay with the, the rough and rugged presentation. They were okay with, uh, you know, opinionated, maybe maybe too much so. But they were okay with it. And Bigger Pockets is the place that was okay with that. And so I'm grateful for that because that was part of my growing up. Um, my rationale as an entrepreneur has always been the greatest impact on society I can make is as I learn to pass it along. And I don't have time for bullshit. I don't have time to make it pretty. I don't have to have to put a bow on it. I don't, you know, it's just, it's raw uh, material. As I learn it, I pass it along. Sometimes I get paid for it. Sometimes I don't, but it gives me satisfaction and it allows my evolution within my own space, my own skin, so to speak, you know? And so bigger pockets were a big, big part of it. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm grateful for it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. And I, I would say not only did they let you, I think they loved that you were that way, Ben, because you know, one, one thing that attracted me to a lot of what you were saying was you there was this, and there still is in everything, whether it's stock investing, real estate investing, or just like the self-improvement, you know, uh, arena, there are people who want to simplify, oversimplify everything. And that does a lot of damage uh, to people sometimes when they come in and thinking everything is, is easy. And it's not always that it's super hard, but it's not always that it's very easy. And right. for someone to come in and say, look, Here's the truth of it. Here's the reality. Here's the time and the effort. Here's the here are the numbers that you actually have to look at. It's not just as easy as uh, following some very general rule that may work in some market somewhere and not in your market. So I think they appreciated it. I appreciated it, and I know a lot of others did too. But before we get in too deep here, because we'll we'll, we'll get on a roll, I'm sure we we got to get some bourbon flowing. And <laughs> I got I got something good for you. So I hope you appreciate it. This is one of my all time favorite bourbons that I've ever had in my entire uh, longer than it should be bourbon drinking life. Um, This is a bourbon called Weller 12 year old, and it's made in my hometown, Frankfort, Kentucky at Buffalo trace distillery. It's uh, obviously in the name it's 12 year old. You may have heard of Pappy Van Winkle, um, which, you know, became just this uh, phenomenon that uh, everyone in the world is trying to get a a bottle of. This is actually the same recipe um, that Pappy Van Winkle is. It's just aged a little bit differently. Um, it's obviously younger than like the Pappy 23 and things like that, but it's the exact same mash bill. So it's the same, same, uh, mixture of grains and things like that. So as you can imagine this bourbon, which used to be pretty readily available is now also almost impossible to find. So the fact that I'm sharing one damn drop with you 
tells you tells you something uh, about you know what I think about about your opinion. So um, well, I hope you, you will so enjoy much. it. And and I'm going to enjoy it right now. Just just a little bit. If we could just if we could just take 20 seconds. Yes. And let me fill this glass. Yep. And I know it's early in the day, but I'm rich, so who gives a shit? Right? <laughs> I can do what I want to do, right? Exactly. I and already hey, put in that $43 million LOI this morning. That's already done. Now I just got to sit down, drink some bourbon with you, talk, mm-hmm. and wait. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. And I heard you say sometime, Ben, that you don't like to drink too much. And we'll get, we'll get into the reason why. I'm sure later as you, as you talk, but so the fact that you're doing this, I appreciate it and cheers and, and let me know what you think. It's very smooth. Oh, it's so good. It's very smooth. It has just enough kick, mm-hmm. but, but it doesn't have too much. Like you're not at a loss. Like I, no, you're, you're not smooth. gasping. You're not gasping for breath. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm also tasting some, fruity thing in the back. I don't know why. I get blackberries actually. Yeah. I get That's blackberries. Weller always gives me blackberries on the front. I kind of get, you know, just kind of that standard nuttiness, vanilla kind of standard yeah. uh, whiskey flavors, but on the back. And I think it's kind of uh, interesting because it's a weeded bourbon. Um, yeah. I get a lot of blackberry that kind of finishes off that, that taste. And it's, it's really, really rather nice. And one thing I like about this, if you take a nice, nice smell there of that, um, this one tastes like it smells. You get that almond and caramel sure. vanilla and you get a little of that vanilla and a little citrus as well. Sometimes you, you smell a, a bourbon or a whiskey and you, you're expecting something and then you drink it and it's like, holy crap, that's, that is not at all what, it, what I was expecting. And that can be good or bad. But uh, it's nice sometimes when you smell something, it smells great. You're really looking forward to tasting it and it just lives up to and, and tastes exactly like it smells. So I, I always love that about Weller. This is, to me, it's about as good as it gets. Thank you so much for sharing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, hey, I, I want you to do this if you don't mind. You know, before we get too much into real estate and wealth building and and all of those things that I think are really important and I really want to talk to you about, I love getting people to share their why because it's really important. Um, I think when when people hear you talk and they get a sense for how you think about real estate and how you think about wealth and things like that. To have that backdrop, to have a little bit of your history, it really makes sense. And um, I don't know if you get tired of sharing your your history or not, Ben, but I think it'd be really beneficial. And I think it's very fascinating. So um, if you would, wouldn't mind, I would love that. Sure. It's not that I get tired of it. It's that I don't want to use it as a crutch. And I, I don't want it to be perceived as such uh, by you or your audience or anybody else. It's, it's sure. just... Um, one of those things. It's true. It's it's the truth. It's happened. It you know, I can't I can't deny it. Um, and it it caused my decision making process to shift in certain ways and and continues to have an impact on me. But I just don't want to overplay that card. In fact, I don't want to play that card. Period. Uh, it, it's 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 not a um, you know it, it's it's not a marketing ploy. It was never meant to be as a marketing ploy. And it would have been easy to exploit it, but I, I you know, it's, I got to be careful not to, you know, because the other side of this is what you see when you look at yourself in the mirror. And what I don't want to see, one of the things I don't want to see when I look at myself in the mirror is the guy that rides that horse. That's sure. not the horse I want to be riding. 
I I get that. Yeah. And and, and for the record, having having known a little bit about your story before, in no way, shape, or form would I uh, consider it as a crutch or you trying to leverage that into something else other than here's here's my story. And we all have a story. And yours, I think, just happens to be pretty damn interesting. <laughs> yeah. So I'm a classically trained violinist. Immigrated from Russia in 1989, went to college at Cincinnati Conservatory, uh, playing the fiddle. Um, and uh, I always get confused anymore. It was either my last year of bachelor or first year of master. Can't remember which. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I had something happen physiologically with my body, which in the end was diagnosed as multiple sclerosis. Uh, which is an autoimmune condition that um, whereby your immune system atta- attacks itself, essentially. It's, it's in the same kind of like Parkinson's, kind of like all of that, all of that kind of stuff. Um, you know, they, they, they can never really predict how it flows. It's very individualized that, you know, it, onset is very heavy and very fast and some people takes forever and, and, and quite mild and other people uh, so far God bless I belong into the latter category um, but um, you know when your arms don't work like they're intended when when you hold a fork in your ma- in your hand and, and you've got spaghetti wrapped around the fork and putting it in your mouth and you end up on your cheek because that's how bad the coordination is you can't you can't coordinate anything, and you are a fiddle player. Talk about fine motor skill. Talk right. about, you know, fine, fine motor skill, right? So that, you know, I'm, I am forever grateful to – I was at that time at the University of Cincinnati Hospital, and I went to the pharmacy to pick up whatever medicine or whatever. So there was a graduate student behind the desk, as you would expect, in a university program. Uh, and, and she, you know, she looked at me and, and she looked at the pills I'm getting and she says, don't do anything stupid. Sounds like good advice. Go. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm forever grateful to that advice mm-hmm. because in, in that time and space, I didn't know what the hell to do with myself. Yeah. All I've ever known up to that point was violin. That's all I'd done since the age of four. Yeah. I did it in Russia. I did it in America. I did it around the world. This is what I did. And, and more so than what I did, it's who I was. Because I am, like you, intelligentsia. And we <laughs> value education. Me? Okay, and we value uh, we value uh, proficiency, and and we are what we are is who we are, and 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 how 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 well we perceive ourselves is how good we are at whatever it is that we've chosen for ourselves to do. You know exactly what I'm saying because this shit is the same in America as it is in Russia, as it is in Great Britain, as it is in France. Okay, it's. Intelligence is intelligence. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying that's what we are. And so at the time, the rug was completely pulled from underneath my feet. I was flying, floating through the air, 
kind of barely catching glimpses of stuff coming at me. And before I knew what it was, it was already gone. And there I was trying to figure out, what do I do? Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty profound moment in anyone's life. And people come to that question. Some people, first off, never ask themselves that and they flounder around. You had to ask yourself that because of other circumstances. And and some people ask themselves that at various points in their lives. But that was probably a profound moment for a young person who you you probably thought you knew exactly what you were doing. I've been studying music. I'm good at it. Here's where I'm at. This is my pathway. This is what I'm going to go do. Then I'm going to go do this. And uh, that's ripped to shreds. You, you you took that plan and, and ripped it up and time to start over again. And that's, that's probably difficult uh, mentally for anybody. Um, but honestly, <laughs> as, as from your story and the, and the rest of the story, you're the perfect type of person for that to happen to because you didn't sulk and cry and sit around and do shit. You, well, I you, did. I <laughs> did. I wouldn't be honest with you if I told you I didn't. You know, this isn't a debonair thing at all. Like, there's nothing debonair. It's scary as shit. Yeah, I imagine. It is. Uh, you know, uh, I, 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 I was a mess for a long time. But what, I, what I'm grateful for is that I took the advice, which is a cliche, but you fake it till you make it. Mm-hmm. And I made myself fake it in so many different ways. I made myself fake it. Yes, the initial shock came and went. It receded. And then there was left confusion. Mm-hmm. There, was, there was a lack of direction. There was a lot of confusion. Um, and I faked it. Yeah. I faked it in 50,000 different ways. I faked it all across the board. I didn't know who I was. Right. But it allowed me the latitude to find out it it made it okay in my own mind to take some time to try to figure out what's next and who I am. Right. Well, let's go from there. Okay. So now your life has just changed. Um, Your, your game plan has just changed. You're going to have to rethink really what you're going to do the rest of your life, how you're going to do it, and really what defines you as a person. Uh, because you you were probably, as you mentioned, really intertwined with this identity as a musician. So how then did you make that transition from here you are in a state of confusion and uncertainty to getting involved in real estate investing? I mean, what what dots were connected or what was the pathway that got you from A to B? Well, I wasn't as smart as you. So That's I a lie. Out stocks. I tried to look at it, made zero sense to me. In fact, no stock ever before Tesla. I knew you were going to say Tesla. Made sense to me because I believe in doing things that I can put my name on and feel proud about. It. Tesla is that for me. Uh-huh. I believe in that. I believe in the purpose. I believe in the story. I believe in the identity. I believe in the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And I'll buy the stock. Yeah. Well, that's the first time that's ever happened to me. And maybe the last time it'll ever happen to me. But I looked at stocks. I couldn't figure it out. I wasn't smart enough to do to like start Facebook or Twitter or something. It just, just 
it, it didn't internalize. It didn't compute to me. You know, at the same time, I looked at real estate. Um, I, I talked to people. I looked at real estate. The whole thing made sense. Everything from OPM, other people's money, to leverage, to, you know, inefficiency of the market. The whole thing made sense. Um, and so I became a student of it. Well, I'll say this, Ben, and I totally understand where you're coming from on the on the stock market thing. And as an advisor, and one of the reasons, you know, I have some freedom now to be, you talked about uh, bigger pockets allowing you to be yourself. I own my own company now. I can be myself a little bit as well. One of the downsides to before I had this opportunity to do that is, and you can imagine this, if you own a firm where you're trying to get people to invest in stocks, if you're telling them to invest in real estate, uh, the firm's not going to like that too much because, right. you know, in theory, you're sending money that could come to the firm outside of the firm. Here's the thing. I'm wealth building agnostic to a degree. Um, I think there are amazing opportunities in real estate. I think there are amazing opportunities in private companies. I think there are amazing opportunities in entrepreneurship. I think there's probably opportunities right now in buying businesses, well-established businesses from retiring folks who have these small town businesses that haven't capitalized on e-commerce and some of these trends. Uh, and I, and I, I think there's opportunities in, in the equity markets, in the stock market. What I, the way I look at it is leveraging what somebody else, where they're at in their life, what tools they um, want to use and, and can use and use that to help them build wealth. And, you know, obviously I'm, I'm a huge real estate guy. I love real estate. And now I can talk to my clients about real estate. I don't have to say, uh, can't really talk about that. Let's just uh, focus on the stocks here. So that to me is, is a really important piece of what I'm doing now to be able to wrap that in. But I totally understand where you're coming, back, coming from. And I know you're a Tesla guy and, and so am I. And everyone who, who knows me knows that. Um, so I think that's that's pretty cool. But yes, there are definitely some advantages to real estate and you touched on a lot of them. And the two that I think always come back around um, to my mind that, that are really important are uh, OPM and leverage. Those two things, can you get them in the stock market? Can you, can you use margin? Sure. Can you get your ass kicked and end up in a really bad situation really quickly? Yes, as you can in real estate if you make really poor decisions and don't understand what you're doing. Right. But for those who are listening, just talk a little bit about that scenario. And I know you now, you know you had to make a living now doing this. Uh, your violin days as a, as a professional violin player are done. So how do you take those concepts like OPM and leverage and, and turn that into now a, uh, a, a way to sustain your family and, and yourself. Sure. So a couple of different things happened. I started a music school. So we had that business. I actually set it up as a nonprofit uh, in a small town in Ohio. There were donors, but it was such a small town. Nobody really wanted to go there, but my back was to the wall. And so I went there and All I right. Got the 501c3 status for them, and I, I I taught a lot, and then my wife took over, and so that was kind of our day job. And then eventually I phased myself out and just started buying small-time real estate. Um, you know, it took, it took years of study uh, because, you know, you see the infomercials on TV. They give you about 10% of what you need to know, but that's enough to get you hooked on the idea. Now you got to go figure out more and more and more and more. Uh, you know, 
what I think of real estate today, being an institutional real estate guy at this point, yeah. um, versus what I thought about real estate back then, night and day, clearly. Sure. Night and day. Um, but it, it allowed me to become who I am today, to start with $100, $200, $400 of cash flow. That's, that's what allowed me to, to do it. But it was this unqualified faith that I have an answer. I don't know exactly how to work this lever. I don't know which position to, you know, how much force to apply, what to do, how to turn it. But I could clearly see a lever, which for a guy that had his everything destroyed by a medical diagnosis and had no clue of what to do next, that was huge because it, it, it was confidence building. It made it gave me the confidence to continue studying the craft and the art. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And what's interesting too, Ben, you, you had your world kind of turned upside down. Yours was happened to be because of one reason, but other people, it's because of another reason. They might have had a job where they felt like this is my end job. I'm going to retire from here. I'm making good money. I've got these benefits. And then they wake up the next day and it's gone. Or it could be family situations. There are many reasons why people just get their worlds absolutely rocked. Um, yours was obviously totally out of your control. But I think that's really important that there was probably, there was a great, it's like the great reset, right? You, 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 you had to find something exactly. and real estate was that for you, for someone else, it might be a, another business. They want to start a business. They want to become an entrepreneur. It does, to me, it doesn't matter it, <laughs> what it is. Now I could make an argument for, for stocks. I could make, not necessarily in that situation, but I can make an argument for stocks for some things and real estate for others and starting a business or, or, yeah. or working a side gig or whatever the hell it is. That doesn't matter so much, but but what it matters is that you did it and that you you sought it out, that you found something, you latched onto it, and this is this part's really important. You weren't a dumbass. <laughs> what I mean by that is, well, maybe you were a little, but you weren't a total dumbass, and you actually took the time to learn. And people are really easily convinced if someone tells them we can take the learning part out of it and you can just go do it. Like that's so bad. It's so bad. I don't even want to talk about that. So like we are a couple of smart dudes, okay? And we're entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. That's what we are. And for us to take a minute to talk either about people who will lie to your face that everything is easy and they can take all the work out of it or to talk about the dumbasses who actually believe that. That's a waste of my time in this interview with you because that that there's no there's zero value in that. There's I, I you know I didn't get just I I have I have zero patience with idiots. Like idiots can go and 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 do something else. Like well, let's move along then, Ben. Let's you, move you know along. what I'm saying? Like yes, I, I do. Really, you're waking up an animal here because I'm passionate about this stuff. This is where I get off. Like th- this is where I yeah, it's it amazes me. It, that it's so profoundly everywhere, right? But we don't have to let it in here. We can well, keep that shit out. I, I, before we move on, I want to tell you one thing. I don't take a lot of notes. I, I kind of have a brief outline of things I want to touch on when I'm talking to people because I don't, I don't want to let notes or me thinking about what am I supposed to say next drive the conversation. I say right here in my notes, I love hearing you get worked up. 
<laughs> and, and, and and that was exactly uh, what I what I thought would happen if I brought that up. So I'm I'm glad I at least uh, read that properly. Well, uh, keep digging. Go ahead and see shit. Yeah, Just be careful. Be, so, be so, careful. So let's move along here, um, and let's talk about this. You've and I don't know exactly where you were in your kind of career progression in real estate when I was kind of following you in the earlier days of bigger pockets, but I do know this. I know you're, you, you've um, progressed um, a lot just since I've been following you as far as doing much larger deals, syndicating deals um, and things like that. So mm-hmm. why don't you talk a little about what, what are you doing now? So yes, you went through this, you, you, you started learning about real estate investing. What did you learn and how did you end up um, where you're at today with doing larger deals and really building something a little bit bigger than kind of a mom and pop real so, estate. You know. So let me give you, let me, I'll just, I'll, we'll start today where I sure. am today and then we'll walk it backwards to, to see how I got here. So today I have two assets in contract. One I purchased for about 8 million um, with about a million and a half renovation budget in 2018, we're in contract to sell it for 15 and a half million. Uh, that's going to be a one and a half multiple and about 23% IRR to the partners. We're in contract to sell another deal. We've been in it for 21 months. We paid 20 million for it when we bought it with about a $2 million renovation budget. Uh, we're in contract to sell it for about 29 million. That's going to be one and a half multiple about 24% IRR. Uh, about five months ago, we sold the deal that we were in it for 21 months. Um, we purchased it for about 11 million, sold it for about 18. Um, that was a one and a 1.8 multiple, I think, maybe a little bit more, and over 40% IRR. So that was a, a really big IRR plan. Yeah. Uh, this morning, um, I put in an LOI on an asset and I do this about easily two or three times a week. And you're uh, in Phoenix now, correct? Phoenix, I'm in Green. Phoenix. I'm strictly in Phoenix. I buy only in Phoenix. Okay. I manage in Phoenix. Uh, we can talk about why, but um, yes. So I put in an LOI on a 40 plus million uh, asset that um, – We're going to do the same thing with. Now, this one happens to be a little higher caliber, uh, a little newer, a little better location, that kind of thing. But I do strictly value add and uh, strictly by the numbers. Uh, That's what I do today. So there's tens of millions of dollars of equity involved in these deals for investors. And obviously, there's tens of millions of dollars of debt, uh, institutional debt. And um, that's what I do today. This is one this question. Is Can I interrupt you real quick? So you, you, you mentioned value add. So can you just explain that? So it, you know, what, what I see you doing is you're buying these properties. You're figuring out how to, cause you know, the real value in the, in a property like that, a big time apartment complex or whatever is rental income. That's how the, the property's valued at. So you're basically unlocking the potential of that property, increasing rents, maybe updating units, updating leases as you update units, cutting costs maybe in there as well, managing more efficiently. And then when when you're ready to kind of unload, you now went from something that was producing 
you know, X amount of income per year to something that's producing significantly so, more. To give you an example, the property that we purchased for $8 million, we're selling for twice as much. That went from uh, $60,000 of income to close to 100 Okay. Uh, the property that we purchased for 11 and sold for 18, that went from 80 to 125. There was still meat left on that bone. Mm-hmm. The property that we're selling that we purchased for 20, selling for 29, that went from about 118, if I remember correctly, to now we're between 165, some, some, somewhere in that, in that range. With only half of the units renovated, so there's a lot of meat on that bone. Still. Okay, no, perfect. I just wanted to make that clear. Like when you say you're adding value, like what are you doing? So that that makes sense. Now, okay, so that's what you're doing today. So let's start the journey backwards a little bit. So the journey is very simple. Uh, the journey is that of personal growth. It has nothing to do with real estate. Um, by 2013, I had purchased enough small stuff to where. I solved the initial problem. I knew that over time, these loans would get paid off. I knew that the cash flow was there. It's going to continue to grow with inflation and the debt would eventually drop off. I knew that we would be, quote unquote, okay. Mm-hmm. My family, my, my, my kids, my wife, we would be okay. Uh, but, you know, James, like evolution, uh personal evolution, business evolution, to me, is a stair step, always. That's been my experience. It's, it's, not, it's not a line. It's not a zigzag. It's a, it's a process involving growth and plateaus, growth and plateaus, growth and plateaus. At least that's been my experience. And so by about 2013, I just, I, I rolled out of bed. I, I went in the bathroom. I peed because you got to do that first thing in the morning. I know. Getting old sucks, man. You got to <laughs> pee more and more. <laughs> I washed my hands. I splashed some water on my face. I looked at myself in the mirror and I realized that I will throw up if I buy another fourplex <laughs> or another sixplex. You were ready. I am not that guy anymore. That guy is not me anymore. Now, what guy I am now, I had no idea. So when we, when we were talking in the beginning of the interview, all about MS and how the rug got pulled out from underneath my feet and how it was a confusing experience, a lot, a lot, a lot. You know, I've, I've had that several times in my life. When it happened to me for the first time, it was a scary process. Because I never experienced it prior to that point, and I didn't know what to do. But in 2013, 14, 15, I knew I couldn't do me as I was anymore. That cup was full. Right. Nothing, not a single drop would go with it. I didn't see myself continuing that way in that place. I would not be the man I need to be in order to be a happy individual in this world if I continue it in the same way. That doesn't mean I knew what the hell I wanted to do. I just knew that something had to give. Uh, And that eventually led me to the fact that professionally speaking, uh, 
I saw myself as a real estate guy, a real estate entrepreneur at that point. And if I was going to stay in that profession, I had to go bigger. And if I had to go bigger, I had to bring in capital. And if I had to bring in capital, I need to know a whole lot more. And I needed to be in a market that is a whole lot bigger and better with more employment, more population growth, everything, everything, everything. Um, and so, so it was a, it was a period of about three years when I kind of like dangled, kind of like floated, tumbled through space, not, not really knowing what to do. Uh, and eventually we made a decision to move to Phoenix for a number of different reasons. One of them in the forefront being, um, I realized I needed to become institutional. Uh, and Phoenix was the market I chose having studied a lot about what my strategy would probably be um, as the market that I felt the most excited about, so much so that I felt like I needed to move my family there so that I could be on the ground and really truly internalize what I was dealing with. And aside from that, it was a wonderful place with blue skies and palm trees and big pool in the backyard. And, you know, it's just a nice place. So, you know, I'm going back to what you said basically about you kind of woke up. There was some epiphany or some self-realization that I've, I've, I've got to do more. I need to do more. I'm done with, with where I'm at today. Is that just, what, what is that? I mean, is that just this like internal um, challenge that you needed to face? I mean, what I, I understand that because I've gone through similar things. I mean, I left a, you know, a firm I could have stayed at and, you know, uh, had a, uh, office that overlooked downtown and could have built because a nice little business. Now you're going to well, have to sit down across her and tell her about you. You're going to have to show her about you by the way you walk every day. Yeah. The way you walk every day is not sitting in that office where you can't talk about real estate. Yeah, no, she, so you didn't right. have a choice. It's not like you had a choice. So that answers your question. It's not a choice. You hit a wall and you somehow internally know it. And it's not a choice. You're not, you're not you can't stay there. That's it. it like, I, I don't even want to overanalyze it. It just is. It's one of those universal things that happened to a man who is an entrepreneur at his heart at his soul, who knows he's going to be a husband, a father. This is, this, you know, this is the walk. That's it. Yeah. I, well, hell, I, I mean, I can't argue with that at all. Yeah, and, and you're right. It kind of is unexplainable. Like people ask me like, was it so bad? No, it wasn't so bad. It was fine. It was fine, but I want better than fine. You know, fine's not what I wanted to find my life as, but anyway. Yes, because most people aren't you. They're not me. They don't understand. And that's the bottom line of it. Most people don't get it. And that's okay. That's okay. The world is a wonderful place. It's, it's a, it's, there's many colors. You and I are one type of shade. Yeah. But, and, and you know, maybe, maybe Ben, maybe, and I, I don't know, um, because I'm not them, <laughs> uh, to your point. Maybe some people will have similar realizations later. You know, maybe they'll be at their, maybe they'll be 55, 60, 70 years old and say, Hey, I, I want to do this. Like, this is, I'm not 
happy or fulfilled or whatever this kind of emotion that maybe is difficult to describe. I'm just not satisfied. And you know what? That's okay too. Um, the goal I think is just to be happy and to, and for your family to be happy and whatever that takes for somebody they need to need to pursue. So yeah, you know what? That's one thing I like, Ben, you, you're okay with simple answers to complex questions. And I think, I think you're right about a lot of that. I mean, it, you, you can analyze it all day and you're not going to get any closer to the answer. Sometimes the answer is just that this is it. This is what it is. And that there is no uh, beautiful explanation that you can put in a book that someone's going to read and suddenly they're going to change their, their existence and now become somebody that they weren't. Now we can all probably improve. I think we all seek to, or I seek to, and I know, I know you probably seek to, but, but yeah, maybe it's just what it is. But that's what defines why those kind of inflection points even happen because what are we chasing? We're chasing a better version of ourselves. Every right. day you roll out of bed and that's what your job is. You're chasing the better version of yourself. Better version of yourself as far as your family, better version of yourself in your career, better version of yourself in your society. It, it, you know, just first of all, you'll never catch it by definition. Yeah. You'll never catch it. Uh, and yeah. secondly, any notion of expecting that these inflection points will not happen is just silly unless you are not seeking every day to improve yourself. Now, vast majority of society is not seeking every day to improve this, uh, themselves. That's, that's why so many people don't understand. But that's what we do. That's what makes us us. That's why we have a very small circle of friends that we can talk to about this stuff because most people don't get it. So, okay, that's, I, I agree. Let's back up even further. So you had these um, realizations, you've, you've had these moments in your life, I suppose, where some connections happened that propelled you forward. Um, they compelled you to take action for whatever internal forces were, were at play there. So going back to kind of thinking, when did you feel, you mentioned, you know, your musical life defined you. When did that shift and what defines you today? Like, how do you define yourself? I know you, you don't define yourself as a real estate guy. I mean, that's part of your being. That's part of what, that's what you do, I would say. But well, what defines you as a person? What, what defines me professionally is the fact that I manage tens of millions of people's money in these deals. Mm -hmm. And that fiduciary responsibility is something I walk with, drink with, take shower with, take a shit with, <laughs> sleep, everything. Th this is some heavy shit, right? So yeah. if anything defines you as a person, um, that's the kind of thing that does. Now, I, I happen to use real estate as the vehicle as the asset class in which I do this. But fundamentally, what am I? I'm in the financial services industry. Yeah, 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 absolutely. You know, it's just, that's what it is. Now, I, wa I want to touch on this because I think this is a good transition. I wanted to ask you this. There's a, um, today, there's this kind of common in vogue mentality and things we tell young people, right? When they're coming up and they're getting ready to graduate, go do something you love, go do something you're passionate about. Go to if you're going to work every day and you're not having a uh, having fun, you need to do something else. I heard you say somewhere, sometime on a, on some podcast or an interview, I don't even like real estate. 
So, yeah. and I think that's actually really important to talk about that because you're well, using real estate like as a tool. Are you going to like about you know having a knife pulled on you by a sub? Are you going to like about a tenant setting a building on fire because they're being evicted? Which part of this is sexy to you, do you think? Okay, I make a lot of money. I make a lot of money for my investors. Okay, this is a job yes. that I'm really, really freaking good at, okay? I have to do it because I have a family. Everybody has to do a job. It, 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 just, it can't be glamorous for everybody. Mine isn't glamorous. It's full of having to deal with people and circumstances that I wouldn't let near my house. <laughs> is, this, is this accurate? You invest in real estate so you can do the shit you love otherwise. That's exactly right. Now, listen, do I take pride in what I do? Yes, I do. Do I approach it extraordinarily seriously in terms of fiduciary responsibility? Yes, I do. But I have a very clear mind about what it is. There's nothing glamorous about it. I don't go to shows and speak on stage. I stopped doing that about four years ago because I realized it's just not me. I don't, I don't, you know, we have a podcast, but it's numbers, numbers, numbers. There's no fluff. We don't, we don't, you know, it's, I'm not Cardone. I don't, and I, and I can't, I can't stomach it. Like it, it makes me really <laughs> irritated. To be honest with you, <laughs> and you can tell, very animated about it too. Um, uh, I agree. I agree, and I, I get you know people send me stuff all the time, and, and they do so well intended. They're like, "This is like really motivational. You'll really like that." And don't get me wrong. Sometimes I'm like, "Yeah, that was pretty interesting." A lot of times I'm just like, "Dude, that doesn't do anything for me." Like that was so full of like he didn't actually say anything. He was just yeah. talking, you know. So I get your frustration with some of that nonsense, and it is, yeah. I mean, dude. Did you ever get on Clubhouse? That's all that shit is. Listen, listen. I tried to. It was so revolting. It lasted all of two days. Those motherfuckers know nothing. They know nothing. I mean, explain this to me. How come a room with 900 people on Clubhouse who all flew to wherever they're at in a private jet and they're all waking up at 4.30 a.m. and doing yoga and meditating and reading a book and writing a book. And do, how come none of them can actually say anything about what they do other yeah. than what uh, it's it, I, I think I lasted maybe a day or two longer than you. And I did actually find like a bourbon group that was pretty interesting. <laughs> but I, w- I was the same way. I'm just like, this is so much nonsense. And it's, it's like Instagram with words in the sense that it's going to make any normal person have this odd feeling that they're not doing enough with their lives, yeah, even though yeah. they're probably doing as much or more than these people yeah. who are somehow saying they're experts about something without actually saying anything about the subject. They're claiming it's the weirdest thing, man. It is so weird. Anyways, I, I knew if you got on there, you would, uh, I did. I tried to get on there. So Ben, one thing I want to uh, ask you about, you know, you hear, especially in the real estate business, you hear about everyone's successes, yours included included in that. Give me a failure. Talk about a time you failed and why you failed and maybe what you learned from it. Because I think that's as important as the times you were successful. And Very first indication, I tried to put, the, well, let me, let me take a step back. About four years ago, 
I went to a hair, hair salon to get uh-huh. a haircut. And I'm sitting in that chair and she's working on my head. And, and all of a sudden she says, oh, did you know you have a bald spot? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you can imagine like a double take, like what? Am I paying, so I'm paying you to tell me that? <laughs> she, she takes a mirror. You know how they do. They put it behind your head. Oh, yeah. You can see it from here in front. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's a three-inch in diameter bald spot. This bald spot, James, came from a failed transaction. <laughs> I had uh, taken investor's capital, put it into the account, and then the seller decided not to perform. Um, and... And I had to send people's money back, obviously, which I did. But it was a stressful and embarrassing moment. And, you know, the the stress clearly caused the hole in the back of my head, obviously. Hope it doesn't Um, happen again, Ben. Well, it it could happen again, yes. But, you know, you didn't, you didn't, you you can't fold. You got to. Get up and go. So I lost a bunch of money on that because, you know, you have to do due diligence for what you pay out of pocket. You have to, you know, do a deposit to the bank. You have to send money to Freddie Mac. You have to do all kinds of stuff up front uh, that you can get reimbursed from the, uh, you know, the fees um, when you close. But, you know, if the thing goes sideways, you lose. So, for instance, the offer I put in, uh, this morning, million dollars, mm-hmm. non-refundable, day one, earnest money deposit, yep. in addition to other fees. So that entire million dollars comes from Whitehaven Capital, which is basically my partner and myself, Sam Grooms and myself. And, you know, it's not like I'm going to close a bad deal just to save myself a million dollars because I'm – 36 years old and I want to be around doing deals for 20 years. And my reputation is much more important to me than 500,000 or a million dollars. I know it sounds very debonair. Oh, what's the big deal? A million dollars. No, it's a huge deal. But my reputation, that's a whole another kind of dimension altogether. So you can't even, you can't even put money on it. Right. So um, there's, there's been, a lot of failures that didn't kill me. I'll put it that way. Um, but, you know, with, with now, nowadays with, you know, I got smart. It just, I just, you know, before COVID, it's so funny. I, I think the last transaction we were purchasing before COVID, I had a couple of investors who told me I'm, I'm raising too much equity because it's going to impact their IRR to have so much uh, equity sitting in the account and, and, and not being deployed. I haven't heard that argument since COVID. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. You know? yeah and, that, and here's, here's the thing. What happened in COVID was interesting. You know, most sponsors, a lot of sponsors, they will collect a pile of money. When the times are good, they will take that money and they will deploy it into CapEx. They will deploy it into improving the property, into doing the value. But they immediately tighten up 
when something goes sideways, okay? So right from the get-go, I adopted a different kind of policy. Here's a pile of money for reserves. Here's a pile of money for capital expense. And the reason I see it that way is because if there's something bad happening in the market, do you want to have a better improved asset or not? Right, right. Ultimately, which way are you safer? Right. Okay. So it's, it's, yeah. it's counterintuitive. Uh, my entire strategy is based on spending more money. Yeah. When everybody else is refinishing the countertops and refacing the doors, we're, we're ripping everything out and putting granite and, you know, stainless and everything else in. And we're doing that because the faster we do it, the, the faster it collateralizes the investment. So people are safer there. There's more value there. Well, that takes confidence in what you're doing. And and I agree with you. And and on the equity side of thing, thinking about stocks, I will tell you this, when something like COVID happens, guess what the first thing everyone thinks about is, oh shit, what shitty assets am I sitting on? Well, why were you shitting on sitting on shitty assets? It's like a tail yeah. twister. But you know what I'm saying? Like why it nothing changed. I mean, COVID happened, but they were shitty before. So why right, were yeah. you so, you know, I look at things like, okay, when something bad happens or something unusual or just some strange force in the universe or the world or whatever it is, that's when people start to reanalyze what they're doing. I try to try to do that when it's not under duress no, because no, you need to do exactly. that all the time. And I think that's the right way of looking at it. You were doing, you were deploying capital when no one else was. Because you well, had already I'm, thought I'm of assuming it. something bad is going to happen. That's the thing that happens when you fail a lot and it doesn't kill you. Yes. When it doesn't kill you, you walk away from it realizing, I don't know what's going to happen, but it's going to be some kind of black swan. Why? Because it's happened before. What the hell is the difference? I mean, why does it matter what happens? You, you, should, you, you can't assume that it won't happen. We know. You don't know what it's going to be. But I, I was talking to a, a client this morning. And we were talking about COVID and they, and it came up. What do you think? Like what happens when the next um, pandemic happens? I said, the next pandemic's probably not going to be a pandemic. It's going to be something else. It's going to be the, the whole, somehow the, the electrical grid goes out in the country for three days and, or, you know, it's going to be something we haven't experienced before. We're not prepared for. That's why it's bad is because we're not prepared for it. Right. So you know, I try when I'm investing, whether it's in stocks or real estate or whatever it is, I try to think about what, you know, what are the risks? And at the end of the day, no matter what happens, what do I have? What am I holding? What is this investment? And why, why did I invest in it? Am I investing in it because everyone else is? I, that's not a good reason. Am I investing in it because I understand the business model and I've, I've taken a look at the risks and I've taken a look at the potential rewards and I see a, a, an attractive difference between the two? Right. Then okay. Right. And, and, you know, you know, a couple of points. One is before COVID, we could close deals with two or three months of debt service in reserve. As far as the lender is concerned, that's all they required. I closed with 15. Wow. After COVID, you have to close with an extra nine months in reserve. Guess how much difference it makes on my business. Right. You were already said. Yeah. Because it's always going to be like it's it's a sell in the underwriting. It is what it is. It never gets changed. It is what it is, right? So uh, 
I, I don't know what's amazing about it. The, the only thing amazing about it is that people don't, <laughs> don't realize it. Don't, don't yeah. do it this way. It just doesn't make any logical sense. Now, the other thing, I, the other point I want to make is uh, we got to go back to what we are paying money for. And as an investor, I pay money for the Delta. I don't pay money for what's there. I pay money for the Delta. The more the Delta and the safer that Delta is, that's the only equation. I see my my mandate, the highest possible return on a risk-adjusted basis. Right. So if I buy a high-quality asset, which is de-risked, then maybe I'll accept a little lower Delta because it's a different, different class of asset. If I buy a more destabilized asset, I'm going to expect a higher delta in there sure. to mitigate the risk. People often ask me, how is your, specifically beginners, how is your underwriting different from mine? And my answer has always been the same. You underwrite returns, I underwrite risk and back into returns when I get comfortable around the risk. The risk profile is what this deal is about. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's a good way of kind of putting it um, because I think people can get hyper-focused on the return part of it happens in any investment. And, and there's, there's a conflict of interest there because you're, you're trying to attract capital. You know, you're trying to, you're, if, if you're, if you're syndicating capital like I do, you know, there's a market for it. And if you're going to be, truly honest about the risk, are you going to be able to attract capital? So risk mitigation, aside from what you've bought, has to do with three things, value add, cash on hand, and the type of financing you're using. And that's the most tricky thing because when I when I look at the risk of financing, I look at the risk is represented in an inability to pivot. So in other words, any financial product that has a huge cost associated with pivoting away from that product, I don't want it, even if on the on the surface it looks good. So most people think fixed rate interest rate uh, mortgages are fantastic. Well, in the commercial space, uh, these big loans are packaged into mortgage-backed securities and they're sold uh, to big investors. Uh, and the prepayment in those notes is a function of either something called defeasance or yield maintenance. And basically, there's about seven or eight ways to calculate and every bank and every fund does it differently. But essentially, you are making the end user of that note, the investor, whole on the presumed return that they were going to get when they invested in that paper. Okay. Okay. Well, that's tied to the bond market. Now I'm not the person to explain to you exactly how this works, but it could be in millions. The type of loans I take out 20, 30, $40 million loans. You could be, you know, to to prepayment penalty on that could be $4 million. I just competed on a deal which had that issue. And they were selling, they were flat out telling us it's either going to be this price if you assume the mortgage or it's going to be this price if you are going to cash the mortgage out and the uh, seller is going to pay the prepayment penalty. Right. 
there's a huge risk. Why? Because I want to be able to take action. If rates for some reason go through the floor, I, I know in this environment they kind of are in the floor. Right, but, right. Yeah. Suppose we're dealing with higher rates and the rates go down and I want to refinance. I want to be able to refinance without right. having to worry about a $3 million prepay. If I get an offer to sell on a risk-adjusted basis, I would sell, but my hands are tied because of that $3 million prepayment. Now that's destroying so much of my investor's return. Now I can stay. Well, guess what? On a risk-adjusted basis, the less value-add you have, the more risk you have. And the longer you stay in the deal and you perform your value-add strategy, the less of it you have left on the back. So at some point, there's an inflection point where it's good for you to get out. Yeah. And if well, you can't, there's a problem. Well, you, you brought up something really important, I think, talking about interest rates. There is this wide belief that interest rates, because they're, we'll say near his, you know, last quarter, the 10 year treasury rose 83 basis points, which was the most in a quarter since I think 2016. So yes, interest rates rose. Everyone freaks out. Everyone gets all weird. Um, even though we're still very close to historical lows and I, and all economic, uh, thinking about what could happen, they can go lower. People want to act like they can't go lower. Bullshit. Look around the world. There are there are many countries in the world today with negative interest rates today, and and is that the prevailing belief or or prediction about the U.S. markets for the near term future? No, but does that mean it can't happen? Absolutely not, because most people who are predicting things don't know. Well, no I will knows. tell you that institutionally, I I make it a habit not to guess. Uh, there are people whose job it is to study this stuff. They are the professionals. So all I have to do is go look. So every time I take out a mortgage, if it's a if it's a fixed rate, that's different, but I never do those. If it's a floater, whether it's Fannie or Freddie or some kind of debt fund or something, they require you to do what's called uh, purchase a cap rate, uh, a cap policy, a, a, a rate cap policy. What it is 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 an insurance product that a few insurance companies sell. Chatham Financial is probably the biggest animal in that space. And they sell that policy. They make it their business to study the Federal Reserve policy and to study the environment and to come up with an understanding or kind of their opinion of what the rates are going to do in the foreseeable future, whether it's three quarters, three years or 15 years, okay? Mm-hmm. So they have what is called a forward yield curve. And they they have that for LIBOR, and they have that for right. the Fed average, and they have that for all that. So all I got to do, because I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a dummy, you know, I, I, I don't know this stuff. All I got to do is go look over there. And if you go look over there, that will tell you what the professionals think. They put their money where their mouth is because the policy – it's cheaper than shit right now. Yeah. Okay. They don't really think it's going to go. Yeah. They project it to go higher, but it's like, it's not like, you know, no, no, it, no. It's like, it's, right. it, it's crawling like this, you know? Yeah. And if you look at what Freddie and Fanny are doing, they're adjusting their spreads. They're adjusting their spreads. So we had an 80 point bump in, in, uh, in the rate, but 
but the lenders are adjusting their spreads so that the rates stay more or less calm. You know, if you look at powers of B and you see what they're doing, you have to begin identifying what the likely outcome will be, right? I mean, you can try to get your information on Facebook or CNBC or whatever, but you really have to go and 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 watch people what 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 people whose job it is to deploy capital in that way and to to, to formulate an opinion, scientific opinion, you know. So that's what that's what we do. Um, I, I Are you saying I shouldn't be allocating capital based on Facebook posts? Well, I, I don't know. I you know I, I wouldn't give you my money. <laughs> I'm, do, I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> You're doing it wrong. <laughs> I'll reconsider. I'll reconsider. Uh, it's funny. But yeah, it's, I mean, it's a good conversation, but uh, really, I mean, if I told you my opinion, you'd be stupid to trust it because what do I know? What do I, I don't have any classical training on this stuff. I don't have an access, firsthand access to the right kind of data, nor would I know what to do with it. I mean, I have to, you know, if you got to have an appendix taken out, you go see a doctor. They're the professionals. Right. Right. You know, they're, they're professionals in the financial industry. They're, they're a minority. They're not the majority. But you have to find who the professionals are. And then at some point, you have to draw a line in the sand and trust some opinions of right. some professionals. Well, I don't want to move this forward too quickly, but I know you got some contractors there getting ready to drill some holes in your in your wall. So I want to let you get to that. I want to talk about one last thing and and get your thoughts. And we've touched on it, you know, throughout this conversation. But you know, in my business, I deal with money every day. I deal with other people's money. I invest their money. I talk to them about the future of their money, how long their money is going to last, how we can make it last longer, how we can leave money. It's money, money, money. But what I think is really important, that's not what wealth is. Wealth and money are two different things. They're interconnected and they they certainly are. But I want to talk to you about wealth. What does wealth mean to you? I mean, you're doing your real estate business. You've grown your real estate business. tremendously. And obviously you're doing that for a reason besides, you know, we already talked about, you don't love real estate so much um, as it is, you know, a tool for you to, to do things that you do love. So what is, what does wealth mean to, to Ben Labovich? Well, I mean, in the beginning it was um, if I can't show up and punch the clock, then I, then I have to figure out a different kind of way to, to support my family. And then, and then it became how, how much can I grow mentally, intellectual, worth-wise? Uh, how far can I push this? Um, I, you know, more and more, it's interesting. Nobody's asked me that question for a long time. I mean, I, my default answer is that everything I do, I do for my family. But I'm wondering if that's necessarily true because that, that's a necessary outcome of my success is that my family benefits. But I think the reason I really do things is selfish. I can't back down. I can't see that guy in the mirror. Um, I, I can't not try to be better tomorrow than I was yesterday. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of all about me. That's now, interesting. No, I was, I was just going to say it. Family's the default answer. I mean, we all do. We and we and I think there's that's there's truth there. I mean, obviously, 
we, we love our families. I mean, I love my wife. I love my daughter. I love my extended family and my friends and, and everyone who's helped me and everyone who cares about me. But I think you're right because if that were the case, like your family's been taken care of, like you could have stopped a long time ago and your family would be fine. Right. So it obviously extends. That was, that's probably, you know, if there were a checklist, that's probably number one. Okay. Family's taken care of. So you could have stopped there, but you went on to, you went on to number two. That's more of a need, right? So family is more of a need. Once you get the need taken care of, what's the want? Um, and I'm still intelligentsia. Yeah. I'm just not in music anymore. But when I say the word intelligentsia, I, 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 I'm a little facetious about it with a little bit of a negative connotation to it. But there's also positive connotation to it. Um, this, this desire to be better. To be chasing something that can't be caught. I mean... It's a really hard conversation to have with somebody that lives paycheck to paycheck. And out of respect for their circumstance, you don't have that conversation with them. Right. That's a different battle. It's a different battle altogether. And I I respect and appreciate what it takes to win that battle. But we're not fighting that battle, whether it's God's blessing or whether it's luck or whether it's the right people at the right time, whether it's our ability to recognize opportunity, whatever it is, we're not fighting that battle. We're, we're, we're doing, we're doing something else. Um, so, you know, giving back is fun. Taking care of your family is a necessity, but really all those things come, they're results. They're not the causes. I I think, Mm, Um, yeah. You know, I like that. Well, I like that. I like that. That's uh, kind of a different take. And I, and I agree with you. <laughs> it's very easy to sit there as an individual, right? And like take this high ground of like everything I do is for other people. But realistically, that's bullshit on some level. That's, I mean, yeah, exactly. it's there, right? I mean, I, I think you care about other people. I certainly care about other people. But that's not why I do everything I do. I mean, we are selfish creatures to some degree. And we've got you know, intellectual needs, we've got emotional needs, we've got physical needs, we've got all these things that need to be met. And to pretend like we're somehow above that is is kind of nonsense, I think. So to acknowledge that, it's something no one said yet on this show, which I and I think that's really important to acknowledge that because if every person says, I do it for everyone else, wouldn't this world be a lot better? I mean, if that were true, there would be nothing, there would be no reason to worry about anything ever. There wouldn't be anything. That's because true. you can't help anybody until you've helped and satisfied yourself. Somebody once, when I studied marketing, somebody explained to me what marketing is really all about. Really, truly successful marketing goes like this. Picture an ocean. You are sitting in a little rowboat in the middle of an ocean. And you see people at the surface, you know, gasping for air and they have their hands stretched out. Help me, help me. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm drowning. And you are the guy in that boat in dry clothes. And you have the capacity to stretch your hand and pull someone up. The thing about that picture 
is you have to build the damn boat. The, the, yeah. you know, anything else is intellectually dishonest. And it, it excuses the reality of how difficult it is to build that boat. you got to build it first before you can stretch your hand out. And so that's why majority of people go around asking them, listen, I, I do so much good. I, I want to help everybody. Why am I treading water? Why isn't this? Please, your boat, your own boat is taking on so much water. Well, how much help do you think you can give anybody? That's true. All right. I have one. I promise. I promise. One last question. Totally unrelated. I'm done with money. I'm done with wealth. You've, you've, you've given enough already there. I started really getting into classical music, you know, over the last three or four years, uh, really, really last two favorite composer. Mozart. Mozart. Uh, you know, I'm, I, I, I go, I, I don't have a, I, I early, I tended towards Bach, I think because Bach is just so, um, it's very like organized. I could like, as a military guy, I could like wrap my head around the the music Dvorak really lately has been on my radar. So um, I've really been, in, been enjoying that, but I, I really, you know, it's, it's one of those things. If you would ask me five, 10 years ago, if I'd listen to classical music, no way, not, not, not going to happen. You know, but, uh, you mentioned a couple of times in this uh, time that we've been together that a lot of times my answers are very simplistic, very to the point, very kind of crystal like mm-hmm. Mozart. Yeah, a lot of clarity with your uh, with your thinking, Ben. Yeah, so Mozart speaks to me. It's eloquence personified relative to music. There's nothing ever been, or I, in my opinion, will ever be, that is more to the point of what is beautiful, more eloquent, nothing extra, just enough of everything than Mozart. I saw your daughter there. Who's her? What is she like? Who's her favorite? I know uh, she's a she loves musical theater. Yeah, so I know she's a performer. Another conversation. I think you're really talented. I watch your videos on Thank Facebook. You. You're welcome. So, all right, I will let you, sir, get to your family and let those contractors uh, get to work on your house there. But James, man, I loved it. I, I, I enjoyed it so much. Could have probably gone for another two hours if we had the time. I, I appreciate the opportunity to sit down with you. This was as fun as I thought it would be. Um, I'm hoping it was somewhat entertaining for your audience or will be and somewhat educational in some way. Um, thank you so much. Yes, sir. I, thank you, Ben. And uh, Bella, is that your name? Mm-hmm. Good to see you. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks, Ben. Bye. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Ben Labovich. I know I learn a lot from him every time we talk or anytime I read anything he's written. And if I can get him worked up, I definitely feel like I've done my job. I've got more great guests lined up for future episodes and can't wait to have more fun conversations over a glass or two of bourbon. Please feel free to reach out if you have any questions, suggestions, or topic requests. You can email me at james at vermillionprivatewealth.com. And don't forget to subscribe or follow. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.